On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody out there in rock and roll land. This is Joe Milliken, author of the Benjamin Orr biography. Let's go, Benjamin Orr, the cars. Let's go. And you're listening to Joe K on Play That Rock and Roll. Awesome podcast. Check it out. Let's go. a test this is play that rock and roll podcast edition i'm your host joseph k and like the song at the start says just call me joe welcome to our first interview of 2021 my guest today is author joe milliken who recently published a book called let's go benjamin Orr and the cars obviously this is a biography of ben Orr from the cars Ben Orr was the bassist and co-lead singer for The Cars, and he sang some of The Cars' biggest hits and best songs, including Just What I Needed, Moving in Stereo, Bye Bye Love, Let's Go, and The Cars' biggest chart hit, Drive. Who's gonna drive you home tonight? Ben died tragically young at the age of 53 in 2000. And that combined with the fact that he was always overshadowed by frontman Rick Ocasek in his time with the Cars, Ben is sadly overlooked in classic rock history. Which is a travesty, because he was extraordinarily talented and he deserves a lot more appreciation. This book serves to remedy that. In the interview you're about to hear, we discuss Joe's process for writing this book. We discuss Ben Orr's musical origins in the city that rocks, Cleveland, Ohio. We talk about his long-standing partnership with Rick Ocasek, which actually predates the Cars, going back some 10 years. And of course, we talk about their time in the Cars, and we even touch on why the Cars ultimately broke up. I wanted to have Joe on the show because this is exactly the sort of project that classic rock fans should support. Look at it this way. There is absolutely no shortage of books or movies or coverage in general for guys like the Beatles and Dylan and Springsteen, the Rolling Stones, all well-deserved. But the fact is, people like Ben will be lost to time if we as fans don't keep their music and memories alive. And Joe did exactly that by putting out this book. So if you're a classic rock fan or a Cars fan, I think this is a must-read, and you should get a copy for your collection. If you want to learn more about the book, you can go to benorbook.com, and there's also a Facebook page for Let's Go Benjamin Moore and the Cars. And if you reach out to Joe on Facebook, he can get you a signed, personalized copy. So without further ado, here's my interview with Joe Milliken, author of Let's Go 
Benjamin Orr, and the Cars. It literally took me a decade to put this book together. Um, when I started the book, um, Ben had already passed away. He had been gone for, I don't know, seven or eight years. So obviously I wasn't able to interview the man himself. Um, but if you can't do that, you know, what's the next best thing? You interview as many people who knew him as you can. So that's what I did. Um, I interviewed over 120 people um, for this book. And um, so that was, you know, along with it just being in my spare time, um, that was one of the main reasons why um, it took me so long. Um, and, you know, some people have asked me, well, you know, why Ben Orr? You know, I mean, why wouldn't you write a book about, uh, you know, the Cars as a band? Or if you were going to pick an individual, um, why not pick Rick? You know, because he was, you know, the front man, the main songwriter, the only songwriter. He wrote all of their lyrics. Oh, he wrote yeah. every... He wrote every one of their songs. Um, the other guys in the band contribute music. You know, when they'd go into the studio, they would all contribute their ideas and sort of add to the pot, if you will. Um, but Rick was the main songwriter. He wrote all the lyrics. So I've been asked those questions. You know, why wouldn't you write about the band as a whole? Or why wouldn't you write about Rick if you were going to pick an individual? Um, <clears throat> and the reason I chose Ben was it actually happened, believe it or not, out of the blue. Um, so this is going back a ways. Um, if you can remember the original um, social media MySpace. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had a MySpace page um, for my music and my writing. And I had only been a published writer for a few years at that point. Um, but I had a MySpace page. And on my MySpace page, you know, I listed that I was from Boston, which is where the cars got their start, of course. And um, I listed some of my music influences. So I listed one of the cars as one of my favorite bands. And one day out of the blue, I got a message from a cars slash Ben fan. And she said, and she saw that I, you know, I wrote that I was a writer, a freelance writer and a music journalist. And this woman sent me a message out of the blue and said, I think you should write a book about Ben Orr. And I asked the same question to her. I was like, well, why would I write about Ben? I mean, at the time I hadn't, I was thinking about writing a book at the time, but I was still going through ideas and trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. So it was kind of cool that she approached me because I was, all of my writing up till that point had been newspapers and magazines. I, I hadn't done a book, but I was actually had been thinking about it. So I said to her, well, why wouldn't I write about the cars or Rick? Why, why Ben? And all she said was, just do me a favor and investigate Ben. See what you think. So that's what I did. I started investigating Ben. And um, I <clears throat> started learning all these things about him that I thought was really cool. First of all, that he was from Cleveland, which is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, I mean, that's a good start right there, right? So I thought that was very cool. And then I learned that... Um, he was a musician from a very young age. And I learned that he actually quit school as a sophomore in high school to pursue a professional career as a musician. And then he ends up being what he was, you know, a famous musician in the cars and ends up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, 
And so I started learning all these things about him. And actually it was his early days in Cleveland is what really hooked me to write this book. It wasn't even that he was a famous person in the cars. When I learned all these things about him as a young guy and, you know, he, um, one of his first bands when he was 17 years old, the Grasshoppers, um, they were on a music television show in Cleveland called Upbeat. And uh, for those who don't know what Upbeat is, it was sort of the American bandstand of Cleveland. Um, it was a nationally syndicated show, but what they do is they would bring in all these national artists of the day, whoever had hit songs at the time, and they would sing their songs on the air, just like on the show, just like they did on American Bandstand. But what made Upbeat a little different was they would bring in um, bands from Cleveland, local bands, to be house bands on the show. So when they would segue in and out of commercials and things like that, they would have a house band playing music. So what they did was they would go into the city of Cleveland and find local bands that they liked and that were hot at the time, and they would invite them in to be house bands on this TV show. So here's Ben, 17 years old, decides he wants to be a professional musician, and his band is a house band on this nationally syndicated TV show, and this is like a dozen years before the cars were even around. So that's really what hooked me. I'm like, so I went to some of my friends who were Cars fans. And I'm like, do you know anything about Ben Orr? And other than, yeah, he's the bass player of the Cars, some of them didn't even know that he sang. A lot of people thought that it was just Rick who sang all the songs. They knew nothing about him. Nobody I asked knew, and I'm like, that was it. I'm like, I got to tell this guy's story. And then, you know, on top of it all, he becomes famous with the cars, and he comes full circle, and he gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in his hometown. I mean, you can't get much better than that. that so is, that's really, that's how I decided to write about Ben. It just sort of, a fan approached me out of happenstance, and I looked into his past, and it was really his days, the things he did early on in his life, is what really made me say, I got to tell this guy's story. And that's kind of how it happened. That, that, it is a great story. And it, it, what you were saying absolutely applied to me. I've always loved the cars. Um, I've always had the greatest hits. I did not realize they had a second lead singer. And I also didn't realize that that second lead singer uh, sang like all my favorite cars songs. <laughs> and yeah, he sings a lot of their hits. For sure. I would never have guessed that the genesis for this would have started on MySpace. That's such an interesting aspect to it. <laughs> hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, 
I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I'm really glad you mentioned um, Cleveland and the the Cleveland rock scene because I think the best information, some of the best information at least uh, for me, uh, reading this book was sort of a, a real good insight into the Cleveland rock scene of the late 60s and early 70s, because I, besides Ben, I think of guys like Michael Stanley, 
and Rick Derringer and uh, James Gang. You know, Joe Walsh spent a lot of time out there. Of course. What, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about Cleveland, the city that rocks. What was this music scene that Ben was a part of, and how did that become the foundation for Ben's um, career? There's also Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Devo. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could go on and on and on. And not necessarily just in Cleveland, like um, a city close to Cleveland is Akron. Oh, and yeah. I think that's where Chrissy Hine is from. That's where Devo is from. But, I mean, it's, like, right next to Cleveland. So it's basically the same area. Um, yeah, you know, when, when it was suggested that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame be in Cleveland, um, I think the general consensus was, Cleveland? <laughs> Why <laughs> Cleveland? Um, but they're really, other than maybe Detroit, um, there, I mean, it really is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, there are so many bands and so many rockers from Cleveland um, in that Ohio area. Um, it's really incredible. And when Ben was first starting out, um, his first early bands, the drinking age was still 18. Um, so there were so many clubs and lounges and bars that you could play at. And I've interviewed a few people um, that were in those early bands with Ben. And at one point I mentioned the Grasshoppers. That was the band that he was in that made it onto the Upbeat show. They were playing five nights a week. They were a local band. It wasn't like they were, you know, had an album out and they were some national band touring around. They were a bar band in Cleveland and they were playing out like every night of the week. Um, So the scene, so much different than things are right now, of course. Um, But back then there were just so many venues and so many places to play and so many great bands in that area that um, Cleveland was just a natural. Um, and who's that? Oh, I can't think of his name now. The, the, the DJ who coined the phrase rock and roll. Um, oh, oh, uh, Alan Freed? Alan Freed. Okay. Cle- Cleveland. Yeah, oh, That's okay, who, yeah. <laughs> he's a Cleveland guy. Oh, there you go, yeah. So the guy who coined rock and roll is a Cleveland guy. Um, so it's just amazing. That area is just amazing. And um, to me, it's like a perfect setting for, for, for where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. And I suggest anybody who can get to Cleveland who, who needs to see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they're going to love it there. Uh, it's a great place. It really is. Okay. So moving on, I think um, you can't talk about Ben without um, acknowledging his partnership with uh, Rick Ocasek. And what I learned and found to be very interesting in your book was the fact that Ben and Rick worked together and had that songwriting uh, musical partnership for years before the Cars got started. Going back to like the, the, the was it the late 60s, early 70s? And, yeah. you know, they had sort of, you know, up and down middling success. It never really took off nationally. Can you tell us a little bit about that partnership they had before the Cars? I tell you, they toiled in poverty for a long time before success did not come easily for them. Um, And that's a credit to them that they 
stayed together for as long as they did and saw it through. Um, although Rick is not originally from the Cleveland area, he's um, originally from Baltimore. Um, when he was young, his family moved um, to the Cleveland area, I think Columbus, um, Ohio. And uh, so Rick was playing in local bands and so was Ben in the same area. So they were in kind of competing bands and they knew who each other was, but they didn't, hadn't really connected yet. And eventually when they did connect, the story goes that they were at a party and they ended up in the basement of this house and there were some instruments sitting there and Ben picked up an acoustic guitar and sang a Beatles song to Rick. And Rick is quoted as saying that it was the most beautiful voice he had ever heard in his life. And right then and there, they decided to drop whatever else they were doing as far as music and bands go and form a partnership right then. And that's what they did. And uh, they, I tell you, they toiled away for about a decade before they finally landed in Boston and got their, their record deal. It did not come easy for them. Um, Rick was a unique guy. You know, usually a band gets together, a bunch of guys get together and say, we want to be in a band together. And then they write some songs and go from there. Well, Rick kind of took the opposite approach from that. He considered himself a songwriter first and foremost. So he would write a bunch of songs and then he would try to go out and find people to play his songs. So he kind of did it in a different way than your conventional band would. So he would write these songs, bring in guys, okay, this isn't working, and he'd write a whole bunch of other songs and bring in some other new guys, and he just kept doing that over and over again. But once he met Ben, Ben was the one constant once they got together. So even though he was still kind of making chucking guys out of the band and bringing in new people. Ben was always there. He always kept Ben because Ben had the rock star looks and Ben had that voice. So he knew if someday I'm going to make it. And if I do, he's going to be a big part of it. So these guys were all over the place. Um, they had three or four different um, incarnations of their band. He wrote a whole bunch of different batches of songs. They went from, East Lansing, Michigan, back to Ohio. Then they said, let's go to New York City and try to get our record deal there. They went to New York City, toiled away there for a while, upstate New York, back to Ohio. So these guys logged a lot of miles for a lot of years, starving yeah. <laughs> to try to make it as musicians. It, was, it did not come easy for them. And then at one point when they were back in the Ohio area, Rick decided he wanted to go to Boston. Um, he heard it was a real hotbed of music. Um, can get a lot of gigs in that city because it's a college town. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of colleges and a lot of clubs and cafes and young people. And the drinking age was still 18. So you could get gigs all over the place. So he decided he wanted to go to Boston. This is like around 71, 72, early 70s. Um, but Ben was a little discouraged at that point because they had already gone back and forth and all over the place. And he had also just lost his dad. Um, his dad passed away when he was pretty young. So he wanted to stay in Cleveland with his mom to make sure that she got settled in and she was going to be okay. So Rick actually went to Boston first. But then he kept calling Ben 
Ben, you got to come. You got to come to Boston. So after about six months or so, Ben finally went to Boston too. And that's where they formed a band called Cat and Swing, um, which a really cool band. Um, they never, they didn't get a record deal as Cat and Swing, but there's some demo songs that are out there um, that you can find on YouTube and the internet to hear them. And I describe them as um, they were sort of a Steely Dan sounding oh. kind of band. They had like a, you could hear the cars there kind of, bubbling up to the surface, but they had kind of a jazzy sound to them too. It wasn't as simplified sounding as the cars. It was a little jazzier sounding. So they, Captain Swing started to develop a little bit of a following in Boston. And back in those days, unlike radio is now, a DJ could play some of their own stuff. They could hear a band in town that might have had an album or a demo out and play their stuff on the radio. You know, now they have to follow a format and you can't do whatever you want. Yeah. Well, back in the 70s, DJs had a little more freedom. Yeah. So there's a famous DJ in Boston. Her name is Maxan Sartori. She was also famous for helping Aerosmith get their first record deal in Boston. She also helped Billy Squire get his first record deal. So she was really big in Boston and she was in a club one night and she heard Captain Swing, loved Ben's voice love the uniqueness of Rick's um, lyrics. And she approached them after the show. They had a demo tape made already. They gave her the demo tape and she started playing Cat and Swing on WBCN. And BCN is one of the most famous FM rock stations. Although rest in peace, it's no longer around now. Oh. Um, BCN was one of the big rock stations in all the country. Very, uh, very influential station. She started playing their music and that sort of really ignited them and as they changed their name to the cars when they brought in their drummer david robinson that helped get them a record deal um the fact so it's pretty amazing that they were getting played on the radio before they even got their record deal yeah yeah and it sort of helped them get their deal it's not like that anymore <laughs> unfortunately yeah i've read a couple of rock bios that like seem to put a, and it's it's very foreign to me because i didn't grow up in that era but like where they a big focus is like this dj specifically believed in the band and played the records and that literally is what got them in the door there's a, I, I read a uh, an ACDC book and there's some some guy in Jacksonville that just played him on repeat and that had, oh, had a big influence very interesting difference between what the music industry was and unfortunately is no longer so that's what happened with Rush. that's what happened with oh, Rush too oh okay they had a tough time getting into the American market oh as a matter of fact in Cleveland oh an, F <laughs> an FM DJ in Cleveland heard their song Working Man on their first oh, album yeah, yeah, and yeah. said, Working Man, that's a perfect song for Cleveland. Working Man's Town started playing it on the air and that sort of helped Rush start getting their name in the States and helped break them out in America. Uh, so you're right, DJs really helped bands out a lot back in the day. So different than it is now, but. <laughs> oh, that's very cool, I didn't know that. Yeah? Okay, okay. So. Um... So I, you, you mentioned this, uh, and I was going to set up for my next question here. So, and, and you talk about this in the book, the appeal, I think, for Rick to Ben is, is obvious. Like you said, he had a great voice, 
multi-instrumentalist, and of course, unlike Rick, uh, Ben had that rock star look. What was it about Rick that attracted him to that partnership uh, that lasted for so long? You know, I feel that Rick didn't think he was going to succeed without Ben. Did Ben feel the same way about Rick? What, what made him stick around so long? You know what was really big for Ben as far as what Rick had to offer, if you will, was that it, it was really, like I mentioned before, that he was a lyricist and the main songwriter because he wrote all the songs. You know, Ben, ben doesn't sing Drive if Rick doesn't write it. Yeah. And Ben doesn't sing Let's Go or Candy O or, you know, Just What I Needed. or mm -hmm. He doesn't sing any of those songs if Rick doesn't write them. And, you know, um, and I, a few of the people I interviewed said this. Um, it's not that Ben couldn't write lyrics because he did write some songs early on in his life. Um, but he was better at creating melodies, the more musical part of it. And he didn't always feel comfortable with lyrics. And as a matter of fact, when he wrote his, when he recorded his solo album, The Lace, his partner at the time, Diane Page, she wrote most of the lyrics for that album. Hmm. So Ben would write the melodies and kind of get the songs rolling and she contributed lyrics. And he wrote some lyrics too, but that sort of helped him create that solo album. So Ben admittedly was not, he was I'm not going to say he couldn't write lyrics, but he wasn't as comfortable with the words part of it. He was more into melodies. So that's what Rick was, you know? Rick was the words. Rick wrote all those songs. He was the lyricist. So, I mean, Ben had it in his mind. You know, he didn't have a problem with not being in the forefront as far as writing. You write the songs, Rick, and I'll sing them. And that was the partnership that they had. And, you know, another amazing thing, like, when Rick would write his songs, he didn't write them or when he was writing his lyrics, he didn't write them with either one of them particularly in mind to sing it. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a song and, and Ben's going to sing this one. Or he'd be writing a song and go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing this one. He would go into the studio with a batch of lyrics and they would both take a crack at it. They would both go in and sing it. Because there's demos out there of Rick singing Drive. Oh, and Rick singing songs that ended up that Ben ended up singing on the album and vice versa. So he would go into the studio with these lyrics and he'd say, well, what do you think? And they would both give a crack at it and they would look at each other. Yeah, that one's you should do. Yeah. And they sort of decided together what songs, who was going to sing what songs. So that's a very unique partnership that they could both put their egos aside and Ben would be like, well, why can't I write songs? Yeah. He didn't think that way. He didn't think that way. When they all went into the studio, they all got to contribute ideas, musically speaking. Um, but Rick was the main songwriter. I mean, he has all the publishing rights to all the songs. He wrote, he wrote all the lyrics. But Ben, you know, it, it's funny. You look at Ben and you see that rock star image. Another thing I haven't really talked about in this interview yet about Ben is um, Ben was not an ego-driven guy. He was a very down-to-earth individual, and he did not seek out the spotlight. And you look at him, and you see this guy, this rock and roll star on stage, dressed to the nines, and all the women, you know, fawning all over him. 
He did not seek the spotlight. I, I, I describe it as this. Um, ben used to flip a switch to go on stage and be a rock star and entertain millions of people. He'd come off stage, he'd flip the switch back off, and he was just a regular guy. He's like me and you. He yeah. really was. Um, he did not seek the spotlight. You know, and once I started learning this, I would watch some of the band interviews that I would find online, and you could see it. Um, he didn't really go out of his way to answer questions. Like, I mean, if, if someone interviewing the band asked him a specific question, of course he'd answer it. But he was always kind of in the background and kind of quiet and didn't really put a lot of himself out there. He was really a private guy um, off stage and out of the spotlight. Um, it's really funny. When after the band became famous and Ben owned, owned a house in the suburbs of Boston, after the band broke up, he sold his house in Boston and he moved to Vermont, where oh. I live, oh. here in Vermont. He you would not think this of Ben. I mean, like, you see the cover. You see the cover of the book, right? Yeah. You know, wearing the leather jacket and the awesome bass. And, you know, you think this really cool guy hanging out in the city. Ben was a woodsman. Oh. <laughs> he liked to hunt and fish and hang out in the woods. And he drove pickup trucks <laughs> and stuff like that. He didn't drive around in limousines. or I mean, don't get me wrong. He had a sports car, too. Oh, yeah. For when sure. he needed to go out of the town, you know, he had his Corvette. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, but he was really a down-to-earth kind of guy. And another thing that amazed me was when I interviewed some of the guys that he grew up with, Ben never forgot where he came from. He loved Cleveland. Um, he was a hometown guy. Um, when the cars were famous and on tour, when they were getting ready to come into Cleveland and do a show, he would call up all his buddies that he grew up with and say, get ready, I'm coming in. And he'd get his buddies tickets to the show, backstage passes, T-shirts and tour books. He'd send limousines to their houses to pick them up. Wouldn't let him spend a dime. Wow. He treated all his friends. He never forgot where he came from. And I always thought that that was... That's one of the most endearing things to me that I learned about this guy in this whole book experience was that Ben really was a down-to-earth, level-headed guy and never forgot his friends, no matter how famous he became, and never forgot what he came from. And that's something that I really try to emphasize, not only in the book, but when I do these interviews, that he really was that kind of guy. He really was. Yeah, that, that was definitely a huge takeaway I had reading the book. Ben comes off as, just like you said, uh, a real humble uh, and cordial and friendly and considerate, like a real world-class dude. And, you know, that's just such not what you would expect for from what we've learned from so many of other our other rock stars that we, we know and, and, and are aware of. Now, when I look at the Cars discography, I notice that Ben sings on not just a lot of songs, and it's fairly evenly split on the first record, but he sings on a lot of singles and hits. But as the years go on, it looks like more of the, the songs that would be singles or music videos had Rick out front. And you talk about in the book, in the, especially in the last two albums, Rick was starting to take more and more control behind the scenes, being a producer, there's a point in the book where Ben had a proposition for him on the last record, and Rick said, I, that's not going to happen. I, I don't remember what it was specifically. But 
as the decade wore on, Rick seemed to be sort of, you know, putting himself more out front um, in the spotlight. And I just wonder, you know, was Ben generally okay with that because he was such a go-along-to-get-along sort of guy? Or did, or was Rick taking advantage of the fact that, that Ben wasn't one to, to stir up trouble? Yeah, that's good. It's a good question. Um, you know, I think... I am going to contradict myself a little bit because I just talked about how they had this partnership and there were no egos involved and, you know, and it was understood that they would go into the studio together and they would decide together who would sing what. Um, you are right, though. Towards the end, it did become more of a dictatorship. Rick did take more of a lead. Um, and, you know... I don't know if you notice this or not, but um, I don't. I don't get into the band breakup a lot in the book. I didn't want to um, because you know there's the saying goes there's two sides to every story, but in a case like this, there's probably a hundred sides. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if I'm not there and if I'm not getting everybody's point of view, right. I, I just didn't want, I didn't. And plus I, you know, if a band breaks up, obviously things aren't going good. You know, there's negativity there. And I didn't want to delve too much into a negative thing. I wanted the book to be positive. Um, so I do talk a little bit about the breakup. I mean, it's part of their history, so I couldn't avoid it altogether, of course. Um, but I don't talk a lot about, about the breakup. Um, and, you know, like I just said, if, if a band breaks up, it's not because things are going better. <laughs> it's because <laughs> things are going worse. Yeah. Uh, that's just the way it is. Um, but yes, towards the end, there was a little bit more of a dictatorship. Um, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, and Rick was taking more and more control over what they were doing in the studio. Um, that last album, Door to Door, was produced by Rick. That was the, actually the first album that he produced. They always had an outside producer come in oh, yeah. to help and, you know, with new ideas and stuff. That last album they did, Rick produced it. They didn't have any outside source to come in with different ideas and to kind of help guide them. Um, so that definitely did happen at the end. Um, and, you know, if I had to pick one more thing as far as, you know, what might have drove the breakup. Um, so I mentioned before that, that Rick um, wrote all the songs. So he had all the publishing rights. Yeah. So when you, when you, when you're the, when you have the publishing rights of songs, you're making more money than the guys who don't write the songs. So he already was making more than the other guys, right? Um, so if you're not writing the songs and you're in a band, how are you going to make your money? Going on tour. You go on tour, you sell shirts, you sell more albums, you sell tickets. That's how you generate more revenue. Well, towards the end of the band, um, Rick didn't even really want to go on tour anymore. Mm. He kind of had it. And not that I blame him. I mean, them guy, I told you about how those guys toiled away for a decade, yeah. starving to death before they even got a record deal. So they've been on the road for 25 years or however long it had been. Um, and he was just was getting tired of it, you know? 
So he didn't really want to go on the road. And that door-to-door tour was a very short tour. Um, they, like, cut their touring schedule in half. Um, so the other guys in the band were like, okay, so you're making all, you're, you're making all these records now, and it's, it's, you have more control. You're making more money because of the song publishing, and now you're telling us you're not going to tour on top of it? And that's how we make our money. So that kind of played a part in it as well. So, you know, I try to be vague about it because I don't know all the details. You know, I, I, I don't want to speak when it's just sort of my opinion. But I think those are some of the things that were going on that sort of contributed to. And when you mentioned um, you couldn't remember the detail about Ben want, wanting to participate more, after his solo album had come out and him and Diane Page actually had a couple of songs that, you know, cracked the top 40 and that album did pretty well. He had suggested allowing Ben and Diane to contribute a song or two or whatever to the Cars album. And that, and Ritz wouldn't have any of that. That, That's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm the leader of this band and, I write the songs, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, that's... So it was a whole bunch of those things kind of coming together. And Ben, to be honest with you, Ben sort of didn't necessarily like being on the road either. He wasn't a big fan of flying in planes. And okay. uh, the last tour, he actually rented a bus. Oh, yeah. And was kind of driving around to the different venues as opposed to flying. Um, so there were, I think it was a mix of a bunch of different things that sort of all came to a head. Yeah. Um, at the end of the band yeah for sure yeah definitely i definitely picked up on the the theme of like burnout and exhaustion and 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 it's interesting that you know when they when they had that comeback uh album about 10 years ago that was another tour that was like ridiculously short i remember when they announced they were going to go on tour i was like oh great finally uh, they're they're going to come back and start doing like the county fair circuit and you know casinos and you know mid level venues and then that just nothing happened after it and I never got a chance to see the cars which you know still bums me out but since you mentioned it I want to pivot to um, Ben's solo album 1986's The Lace I was uh, jamming to the single from that album Stay the Night last night that is a great song that I think stacks up better than a lot of Cars songs. But it it doesn't seem to be one of those timeless hits that gets still played today and I don't know. I don't know if you can, you know, speak to it a little bit. But what do you think of that record? And uh, and and how come um, Ben didn't explore solo work a little more often? I think one of the reasons why that he didn't go beyond the lace with his solo career, um, he he hadn't even planned on doing a solo album. Oh. Um, there was a a break in the band where they were taking some time off in between albums and Electra Records, the Cars label actually approached him and said, do you want to do a solo album? And he wasn't even thinking about that. It wasn't even his idea. And, um, but you know, he said, well, you know, I might as well take advantage of it. They want me to give it a shot. I will. And then he turned around and said, Oh, 
I've got this solo deal. I've got to write songs now. <laughs> um, so I mentioned Diane Page, um, who was, they never got married, but um, they were together for about eight years. Um, that was one of his longest relationships um, with Diane. And she had a musical background. Mm. Um, so she was a piano player and a good singer. And so um, she had a musical background. Um, so they collaborated on his solo effort. And um, he was really proud of it. And I talked to a couple of, I interviewed a couple of people who were involved in the production of that album. And a lot of the music you hear, like when Ben put that album together, he had like a little, um, a little home studio in his house. And he put together a lot of demos and stuff, like actual finished songs. Of course, they needed to be worked on and brought to life more in a main studio, of course. But he wrote a lot of the songs were already written. And these demo songs that he brought into the studio for the producers, some of the music that ended up on the album were actually his demos that they didn't even mess with. <laughs> they sort of, you know, they, they added things to it, but they really liked the feel of his demo songs and a lot of the music you hear on that album were the stuff that he actually had done in his house by himself and they didn't really want to mess with the vibe too much that's they like really Austin's first album exactly exactly like that very cool um so he was really proud of that album and i interviewed diane page um for the book she was super nice to me and uh she told me a little story about how they were doing a little bit of a promotional. He didn't do any solo shows, but they did like a little promotional tour where they went to some cities and went to some radio stations and did some interviews and stuff. And she told me they were in the back seat of, can't remember if it was a car or a limo, but they were in the back seat. And like the first time they heard Stay the Night come on the radio, they were like yelling like they were 15 year olds. <laughs> Going, there's our song, there's our song. And Ben was already a huge rock star, right? So you think he'd be like used to it. But she said that they were so thrilled that yeah. their solo song was there on the radio. And um, a lot of people think that they, they could have built on that momentum and kept going. Um, but shortly after that, Rick was ready, had some more songs ready, and they were ready to be the cars again. And that's really what Ben wanted to do. Like yeah. I said, that's that solo thing. He was approached about it. So he said, okay, I'll do it, take advantage of it, and see what happens. And, and it was a lot of fun for him, and he said he learned a lot from it. Uh, but when the cars were ready to go again, um, the solo stuff kind of went by the boards, and he didn't pursue that anymore, and they went back to doing the cars. Yeah. You're right, though. I think it doesn't get as much recognition as it does deserve. There was another song on there, uh, Too Hot to Stop, which actually got some, the video got some play on MTV, and I think it might have hit the top 40. You gotta open up your eyes. It's a dark But there were a couple of songs on that record that got some good radio plays, so I thought it was a, it was a good effort. It really was. 
for a debut solo album, I thought it was it was really good. And I and my only guess of why it wasn't it doesn't stand the test of time a little better than it than I think it should is just because it came out in 1986 and the 80s had a glut of great music. So that's had really stiff competition. That's the only theory I can come up with. Yeah, I mean, like I said, if you don't continue beyond it and try to build oh, on it more, yeah, yeah that's that true. probably lends to it sort of fading away a little bit because you didn't try to to build upon it. I mean, right. maybe if he had done a second solo album with Diane, you know, maybe they could have built on that some more and it would have made the lace have a little bit more shelf life. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I think I think yeah. I think that's probably right. So circling back, so so the 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 cars ended pretty abruptly after the door to door album and unfortunately they never reunited for a, a tour or an album with Ben while he was still alive. I get the vibe that, and maybe I'm wrong about this comparison, but I, I feel that there's sort of a, a David Byrne aspect to Rick that once he was done with the cars, he seemed to be f uh, totally done with them, you know? And I, and I found it a little bizarre that, you know, when they did get to get back together, when it was announced that, that Ben was sick, Rick calls Ben his best friend, but you mentioned a couple pages earlier that they hadn't spoken in 10 years or something like that. Yeah. You know, that's a, it, it seems like a very complicated friendship. You know, in those last years of his life, were there ever talks of putting the cars back together before Ben got sick, or was Rick just... Uh, just absolute against it or was Ben you know was interest on his level fairly low I did learn a couple things that were sort of off the record okay. about that like you know I did I did when I did these interviews and of course when you write a book and you interview people yeah um, you have to send them a release form oh and sure. you know they have to sign off on it you know how can I say this there was very briefly a little talk about the band possibly getting together again Ooh. after door to door. Um, but it didn't last long. And um, let's just say that Ben at that point was sort of feeling like he had taken a back seat for a long time. Oh. And he sort of felt like he wanted to be, have a more prominent role. Yeah. And he sort of expressed that a little bit. <laughs> and I'm not going to come out and say that he had demands, but... Oh, sure. Yeah. He wanted things... If I'm going to come back, I want things to be a little different. Yeah. And um, it just didn't materialize. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I wish I could say more, but that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. Yeah, we don't have to dive too deep into that, but it, it, it just, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. And it's probably also not unrealistic because I, I think that's the whole takeaway from your book is that like this guy should have been more out front. He should have been more of a household name. The talent was just undeniable and the, his, his songs, are early one, are all radio hits. And how about being a little more out front in the videos? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because like, I mean, how, why is why isn't Ben Orr <laughs> front and center in some of those videos? Yeah. Even Drive, which yeah. he sang, and it was their biggest hit chart wise. Yeah, half of the video was Rick and Paulina. Right, right. Over half the video was Rick and Paulina. 
Yeah. You know, ben is at, at the very beginning, you can see Ben is showing the pool table and he's sitting there and you can see him singing, but then it goes to Rick and Paulina and then you hardly see Ben again in the video. Yeah, and you know when I when I think of the classic hey. cars music videos, the one that the ones that just pop up in my, I didn't grow up with MTV, but the ones that pop up in my memory from seeing again and again on commercials or a YouTube or whatever, the two are you might think and uh, uh, Magic, and those are both yeah. you know Rick songs. But Drive was one of their biggest hits ever, one of the just one of the best songs I've ever heard, and that doesn't really have an iconic music video probably because it feels a little disjointed. Yeah, and I think that magic video is kind of ironic. You know, it shows Rick walking on water. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing I can add about when you were talking about if there was talk about them coming back, because I know I was a little mysterious there, yeah. and I couldn't get into a lot of details, but I, will, I can say this because it is known that okay. the band, the label did offer the band, they said, go, go, if you don't want to do an album yet and you don't have songs done, Let's do a tour. Mm. So they were offered, I don't know what they were offered oh, sure. mon yeah. monetarily, but they were offered, why don't you guys go on tour, get some interest going again, and then if you want to pursue a record from there, go ahead and do it. So the, the label actually approached them about some sort of comeback slash reunion, whatever you want to call it, and kind of left it up to them. Why don't you go on tour? see how the ticket sales are, get some energy going and get some yeah. interest going and see where it goes from there. And that didn't even materialize. I also think at that point, Rick was, you know, and of course this is after many years of touring and starving and all the stuff that they went through. He was also doing his solo albums. He was a producer himself. He liked producing young bands. And so mm -hmm. he had a lot of other things too. He was a painter and he was writing, oh. a book of writing a book of poetry. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. He had all these other things he was doing, too. So I think that all kind of plays a part in why that comeback never really materialized. And it's a bummer because yeah. we all wish that it did happen. It, it, it is definitely the biggest bummer about the cars. But the, the, the relief to that that I think your book offers is that you tell... Uh, the story about how they finally were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, like we were talking about. And you were there that day uh, talking about this book. Can you run us through uh, that story of what it was like being at the Rock Hall that day? When you know, was, was Ben the... I gotta be wrong on this. Was he the first Clevelander to be in the, the Rock Hall? You're close. And you know okay. what? When I first started doing my interviews a couple of years back for this book, I mistakenly was saying that he was the first native Clevelander oh, okay. to be okay. inducted into the Rock Hall. But I learned as things went along that he was actually the second. The other gentleman is a gentleman named Bobby Womack. Oh, okay. That's crazy a, that, that he would be the second still. So that's, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, we'll know, like, and we it. had talked about a couple other people, like you know, the pretenders are in the rock hall. Chrissy's a, but Chrissy's okay. not a Clevelander. She's from Akron. Oh, and, you know, oh, Joe oh, Walsh, who's oh, from oh, Ohio. Of course. Yeah. Joe Walsh is in with with the Eagles, mm -hmm. but he he's an Ohio guy, but not right from Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, so Ben is the second maid of Clevelander to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, yeah, I gotta tell you, that weekend was was pretty special. Um, and like I had told you in our little meeting off the air before we got on here, um, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction happened, I had a book deal, but the book wasn't physically out yet. But I was allowed to go to Cleveland and participate in a media day um, the day before the Rock Hall ceremony. So I was able to go and spend a day at the Rock Hall and I talked to some different radio stations. I got to do an interview with Eddie Trunk on his Sirius XM volume radio show, which is nationally syndicated. I remember sitting there going, am I really doing this? <laughs> it was really a big deal. Um, my, uh, my PR coordinator, uh, Donna Neal, um, was with me for that. And she helped me set up a bunch of the interviews. And um, she actually was the one who got a couple of tickets um, for the for the induction ceremony, so I did the media day and got to promote my book before it was even out there. So that was really cool. And then the next day, going to the ceremony, and um, it was it was pretty emotional for me, you know, because um, even though I never got to meet Ben, you know, I talked to so many people who were close to him, and the guy was just a part of my life for a decade, I, real, I feel like I do know him, as strange as that sounds. I feel like I do know him, even though I never physically met him. And you could just feel it in that room. Uh, I know it sounds, I don't, I don't want to make it sound creepy or anything, but it just, it, it felt like he was there. It yeah. really did feel like he was somehow there. Um, it's really cool to mention that um, Ben had one son, um, um, his name is also Benjamin. He's not a junior, but his name is Ben. Um, and his son was there and got to sit at the table with the other guys in the band. Um, he elected not to go up on stage when they got there, did their speeches and stuff. Um, he's a pretty reserved and, and shy guy himself. Um, he's in his mid twenties now. Mm -hmm. Um, but his son was there representing him. So I thought that was really cool. Um, but so many people approached me over those two day spans when they learned who I was. I had a lot of people come up to me, just music fans saying, thanking me that I wrote this book. And I didn't even have one in my hands yet to give to them. Um, you know, I had some informational sheets and I, let, and I had my website going. So here's where you can get it kind of a thing. Um, but I was treated really well when I went there. And that whole thing was um, the Moody Blues got inducted that night. Oh, and I, lo I love the Moody Blues. Oh, yeah. and, another, and, the, and Dire Straits got inducted mm -hmm. that night. That was the only part that hurt me, though, because I don't know if you know the story, but um, without getting into details about the whole thing, Mark Knopfler was not happy with the way he was treated when the whole thing was going to happen. So he didn't go. So oh. Dire Straits did not perform. 
Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's one. There every couple years it seems somebody makes some big stink about the Rock Hall, and and usually rightfully so because like the you know there's some some iffy stuff with with the artists. I remember Steve Miller raised all sorts of hell when he was inducted, yeah. but he he did perform. But he he was he was pissed. Well, the surviving members, the surviving members of the band did go. Uh, well, other than, well, actually, his brother, who was originally in Dire Straits too, uh, David Knopfler. Oh, yeah. He didn't go. He was like, well, my brother, who's the fame, the real famous one, is not going. I, I don't know. I probably shouldn't. So the Knopfler brothers didn't go. The other guys in the band said, well, the hell with you. I don't care if we perform or not. <laughs> I'm going. I'm getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm going to get on that stage and be able to thank people I want to thank, you know? So those guys were there, and they gave a little speech. So that was the only kind of bummer part of it, because I saw Dire Straits a couple of times in their heyday, and they're one of my favorite bands. Yeah. So I was a little bummed that they didn't get to perform, but um, it was a great night, though. It really it, was a great night. That it sounds like an amazing night. I mean, but Dire Straits band, you sure can pick them with the the lead singers that want nothing to do with their old bands, because that's another one where uh, the Dire Straits <laughs> yeah. they stopped on a dime and they never got back together. And as much as I love, and I do like some of Mark's solo work, but it 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 hurts. It, you know, Talking Heads, the Cars, and the Dire Straits just. You know, he just will not be seen with them, and it's such a travesty because that catalog is so freaking strong. Yeah, Mark Knopfler, it's like, okay, I can appreciate your Notting Hillbillies stuff, but come on. <laughs> <laughs> the Notting Hillbillies are not dire straits. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, not to put Rick down, God rest his soul. Absolutely. Um, I, I do like some of his solo stuff, but oh, yeah. come on. Does any of it match the cars? No. Yeah. <laughs> In my, my humble opinion that, you know, come on, Rick. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And I love, you know, as much as I love Ben's songs, I will take absolutely nothing away from Rick uh, Carr's songs because, like, you know, they, they are one of my favorite bands, especially from the 80s. Uh, yeah, Heartbeat City is such a great record. You know, Candio, Candio, great record. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, well... <laughs> Uh, one one as we're we're getting close to the end here so i wanted to now that you've had the book out for a couple of years now and uh you know i know you're obviously very proud of it are you at the point where you're starting to look to the future for other writing projects do you have anything in motion is there you know what 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 comes next for you well this is a, you'll find this interesting i think i hope so in a couple of my interviews i had mentioned that um, I had some interview quotes and some anecdotes and some little stories and stuff that ended up not being in the book because of space. And also, I, along with a big selling point to the publisher with my book was that I had a lot of photos that were given to me from people I interviewed that were many of them were previously never seen or published before. I mean, I had people who knew Ben personally taking photos out of their own personal photo albums and scanning them and sending them to me. So it wasn't just a book full of photos that, you know, were just done by famous rock photographers that were in yeah. magazines and stuff. Yeah. I had a lot of photos that no one had ever seen before. And as a matter of fact, we're talking a few hundred of them. 
Yeah. One of the toughest things about this book was when the publisher said to me, Joe, you can have 36 photos in this book. Oh. And I said, 36? <laughs> I got to pick 36 out of a few hundred? That was really hard to do. So I had a lot of fans, fan, not fans of me, fans of Ben and fans of the cars who knew about my book before it came out and were sort of following my progress. And when I mentioned in my interviews that I had all these leftover photos and all these leftover interviews and stuff that weren't in the book, they started sending me messages and saying, well, what are you going to do with those? And I hadn't really even thought about them. Nothing. What can I do with them? They're sitting in my files on my computer. So they started encouraging me to put out a companion book. Oh, a companion book for Let's Go with wow. all these extra photos and some of the stories that didn't get in the first book and these interviews. And, you know, another thing, after this book came out, I had people coming to me who knew Ben but didn't know I was doing this book. And they were saying, oh, I wish I had known you were doing this. I knew Ben. I have so many stories about Ben. I could talk to you about Ben all night. We did this yeah. and that and this and that. So I have all these other people that I didn't even interview for the first book. Like I told you, how okay. many people a rock star knows. Oh, yeah. So I have other people who are saying, if you do this companion book, interview me. Yeah. So that's actually in consideration. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so, of course, the book would be a much different format. I've already told Ben's life story. Right. So it would just be more, I don't want to come out and say just a photo book, but it would be a lot of photos, a lot of visuals, some quotes from different people, yeah. a couple of new interviews mixed in. So that's the kind of format that it would be in if, if it happens. Maybe, maybe a little closer to sort of like a coffee table book uh, format. It's funny you say that because yeah. a lot of these people, some of the fans – some female fans especially <laughs> say, just make it a whole book about Ben. Just Ben photos. Yeah. That's all I want is Ben photos. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Very cool. Well, all right. We're coming to the end here. So I got one last uh, fun question for you here. And I'll, I'll give you mine first so you can have a second to think on it. What would you say are your, well, we'll say three in no, no particular order. What are your three favorite Ben Orr songs? And I'll, I'll go first. I'll say that my three are Moving in Stereo, Bye Bye Love, and Drive. Because I think Moving in Stereo really captures that eclectic, electronic Cars vibe. Uh, Bye Bye Love is just a good old-fashioned, straightforward rocker. And uh, Drive is just one of the best songs of the 80s. <laughs> and uh, uh, an unbelievable vocal performance. So th those would be mine. Do you have three? We're close. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. We're close. Um, my three are Bye Bye Love, Moving in Stereo, and All Mixed Up. Oh, okay. Okay. The last three songs on that debut album. Yeah. Those are the last three songs on the album. And I've had the question, no one has ever asked me to pick three like you did, but people in interviews have asked me to pick one. Yeah. And I always say those three songs, oh. but I count them as one. <laughs> because there's no there's no break in between it segues oh, yeah. right that whole second side of that first that debut cars album it just all it seems like one long song to me so that if you think about it though bye bye love 
all moving in stereo and all mixed up. If you listen to that, they all three of them just go together. And I feel like it's wrong if you hear one or two without all three of them at once. When you hear a car song on the radio, you know it's the cars. Yeah. Nobody sounds like them. And the other amazing thing about the cars, they're like the Beatles to me in that. I'm not going to say they're as great as the Beatles. That's mm -hmm. silly. But they are like the Beatles to me in the fact that they were only a band for like less than 10 years. Their oh, first, yeah. yeah. Their first album came out in 1978. And by 1988, they were done. Yeah. So it wasn't like they were around for 25 years and, you know, made 15 albums. Right. They made, what, six albums, I think? Yeah. That's like the Beatles. Think about what the Beatles have done. They were a band for six years. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? How can you do all that in six years? Yeah. So I think the cars are kind of like that. They weren't around a long time, but they made such an imprint on, on pop culture in such a short period of time. I think that's what makes them so amazing, that they weren't around a long time, but you think they were around for 20 years. You still, you hear, you still hear their songs on, on TV commercials and stuff. They haven't been a band for 25 years. Yeah. The original band, right? Right. That's what I think makes the Cars so amazing is that they, they made such an imprint on, on the music society in a very short period of time. Pretty amazing. Absolutely. They are undeniably one of the great bands of the 80s. And unlike the Beatles, and I think this is why your book is so good and important, is that, you know, aside from Rick, they're... they're weren't any breakout household name stars, but this guy absolutely should have been. And I think that's why I love your book so much is because there's no shortage of books about Springsteen and the Rolling Stones and Beatles, and hey, that's all well-deserved. But there are so many other guys in rock and roll, other people, I should say, other people in rock and roll that absolutely deserve their story to be told. Ben is absolutely one of those guys, and this is a, a, a fantastic project that does it. I think you did a really good job with it. I hope everybody listening uh, goes out and gets a copy. So what is the best way for people interested in this book? How do they get this book that best supports you? Well, um, people can come find me on Facebook. Yeah. I have, you know, besides my own personal Facebook page, I have a page on Facebook dedicated to the book. Yep. So if people go on Facebook and just plug in the title, Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars, they can go to my Facebook page and like it, and they can send me a message there, and I can help them with a book because I always have copies. But, oh, great. yep, I have personalized copies available. But it's probably the easiest way for people, I have a website for the book where you can go to the website, you can read about it a little bit more, decide if you want to get it or not, has some photos there. There's a media page on there with interviews that I've done. The interview that we have just done will we'll go there once we get a link from you. And um, it's really easy. It's www.benorbook.com. That's all they have to do. They can go to my website and they can order a copy there. So Perfect. that's probably the easiest way to do it. I think that's going to be it. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this book, and meeting you has been great. This has been a really fun interview, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Joe, I really appreciate you having me, and I just want to say that, you know, when you say, when you thank me for writing this book and that you think it's a great book, which I really appreciate, um, it, I just want to say that it is an honor for me 
to have been able to tell Ben Orr's story. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that maybe love the cars, but didn't really know how Ben fit into that. Um, so to be able to tell, I consider myself a very lucky man to be somehow be chosen um, to write this book about Ben and tell his story because he was a real special guy. And um, the more people who know about him, the better off we'll be. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. And, and you're 100% right. And you did a hell of a good job. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Joe. I can't wait to get the link for this interview. We'll do. I'll be, pro I'll be promoting you. All right. Good deal. And that was my discussion with Joe Milliken, author of Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. I need to thank Joe for being such a fun guest and for being such a great advocate for a criminally overlooked figure in classic rock history. So if I haven't been clear enough, buy this book. It is a great presentation of the story of an important figure in classic rock. If you'd like to learn more about the book, check out benorbook.com and also at Ben or book on Twitter and like I said earlier he has a Facebook page for the book as well and I would also recommend checking out Joe's other social media account the jock of rock which is a broader look at the genre of classic rock Joe posts his other writings there and he shares all kinds of great video and music so if you're a classic rock fan I would recommend that social media page as well because given that Joe is a music journalist he is a great resource uh, for music, recommendations, and information uh, from the genre we love. And once you find Joe on social media, please remember the big four things you can do to help and support this show that cost zero dollars. One, listen to this show. Hey, if you're hearing this, you did it already. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask that you, two, recommend this show to family, friends, anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly one about music. Share us on social media or Reddit posts, anywhere that podcast recommendations are being asked for. Three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to us on YouTube. It's not just show links on those pages. I post plenty of supplemental material on a daily basis but not so much that I'm gonna overload your feed so please seek us out on those platforms and you're gonna see some stuff that you'll enjoy and four please rate and review us on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts ratings and reviews are so helpful for a young independent show such as ours and if you can just take a moment to even just give us a rating, I promise I'll see it and I will really appreciate your time for doing that. And that's it. I want to thank you again for tuning in. There's so much material out there. It means a lot that you chose to spend some time with me. I hope you enjoyed it. So with that, I'm going to play us out with one of Ben's best songs. Take it away. It's on the sky. Some other guy It's just a broken lullaby Bye, bye love Bye, bye love Boston Podcast, check it out <laughs> Alright man, you made my day Thank you so much for that <laughs> You put me on the spot I hope it came through, okay? Bye, bye.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.